Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. British artist Brian Tilbrook first came to live in Hong Kong in 1965 and he says throughout his more than 50-year career he's never had a proper job interview. He became the resident artist for the Mandarin Oriental and British Airways and has done hundreds of theatre sets and murals. He witnessed the riots in the 60s and a tragic landslide in 1972. He also tells me about a leaky art project and judgmental rats. With wife Maureen, Brian Tilbrook looks out to sea from his home in North Lama. Yes, in fact, I've been very lucky. In in the early days, people like me did two years national service. And my fellow workers, our cricket team, all ten of them, went to Catterick in England, which is a ghastly place. And um, (laughs) I don't know why I was a bit later joining, two weeks, and I got um, posted to Japan and I fell in love with Asia. Um, I didn't have any knowledge of places like Hong Kong. I did, after the Japanese experience, keep a lookout for um, jobs in Asia. And a lovely post came up in uh, Kuala Lumpur. And that's where I met Moirin, and where we got married. And um, I actually proposed to her on the beach of passionate love. How about that? Got quite soggy kneecaps. And... Um, the net result of that is that we felt we had to go back to England to show ourselves off to respective uh, in-laws and friends and relatives. But one year in England, you know, dark at half past three in the afternoon in the winter, uh, and we, we couldn't wait to get back to the east, and a job came up in Hong Kong. It was as simple as that. And for the first two or three weeks getting used to Hong Kong, I began to think we'd made a mistake. Then one day a friend took us out to the New Territories and we drove around around roads which sort of disappeared when they got very near China. And um, we began to go for the place. The first tour of two years became five years and five years became eight years. One day we woke up and we'd been here for a long, long time, longer than any other place. And we've been here since 1965, so we're celebrating over 50 years of living in Hong Kong. When you first came here in 1965, of course, you're an accomplished artist. Can you tell me about some of your early projects? I'd been in Hong Kong about um, four weeks when the Hong Kong singers were desperate for a stage designer for um, the Yeoman of the Guard. What's that? It's um, a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta though it's the nearest that Sullivan ever got to writing what he thought was an opera. In other words, the music was much more complicated and serious. Um, It's a lovely show. Can you give me a bit of it? Oh, no, I can't sing. (laughs) I fail my audition every time. Um, But there's lots of rumpty-tump when the musical accompaniment happens. I have a song to sing, oh... It is sung to the moon by a lovelorn moon who fled from the mocking throng. Oh, it's a song of a merry man moping mum, whose soul was sad and whose glance was glum, who sipped no sup and who craved no crumb as he sighed for the love of a lady. Haiti, Haiti, misery me, like a deity. He sipped no sup and he craved no crumb as he sighed for the love of a lady. 
have a song to sing. Oh, what is your song? Oh, it is sung with the ring of the songs made sing that love with the love life long. Oh, it is song of a merry maid, purely proud, who loved a lord and who laughed aloud at the moon of the merry man moping mum, whose soul was sad and whose glance was glum, who sipped no sup and who craved no crumb as he sighed for the love of a lady. So I did a gauze for the front of the whole of the Tower of London, and when it came to the actual set in the City Hall Theatre, I covered every inch of the floor with cobblestones on a huge canvas. You know, the show was a great success and people seemed to like the uh, design because I ended up doing about the next hundred plays, musicals, operas and things in Hong Kong and eventually became the resident designer for the uh, Cantonese-speaking Hong Kong theatre. But the crucial thing about the Yeoman of the Guard was that sitting in the audience there was um, a Mr. British Airways, David Creedy, and there was um, the public relations officer of the Mandarin, and there was also Rhea Bletus, who was uh, very involved in the Hong Kong Club. And each of them saw the set as, this is just the guy we need. <laughs> so I ended up being the resident artist for the Mandarin, and I did everything from... Uh, designing for their different festivals and fashion shows through to all their um, birthday celebrations, their third birthday. And the first big project was Princess Margaret's Visit, where, if I remember rightly, every toilet in the Mandarin had to have a pink seat fixed on it, just in case she needed to use it. And um, <laughs> I, w I was given the awesome task of taking their nightclub, the Button Club, and turning it into London. So when did Princess Margaret visit? Um, this would have been in 1966, in January of 1966. Um, so fairly soon after I'd, I'd got here. And I was, I was very inexperienced and green. Um, I, uh, I was rung up by a British-American tobacco company. And they said, we hear you're going to paint a mural of Piccadilly to go behind the band that plays in the Button Club. Um, now, as you know, Mr. Torok, there's a big Coca-Cola advert. So, would you like to um, come out to lunch and discuss with us the possibility of swapping the Coca-Cola <laughs> advert for British American Tobacco Company? And, of course, I, I was so naive that um, lunch at Gaddy's was enough. But never mind, I enjoyed it all. And uh, I, I duly put um, panels around every, uh, every wall of the, the button club. And um, uh, downstairs in the captain's bar, I did a huge mural of the Battle of Trafalgar. And I carried on doing that for a number of years. And with British Airways, uh, it was very straightforward. Um, they would commission a mural for an agency as a thank you for the agency pushing British Airways and I would get tickets for the whole family to uh, go back to England or the Seychelles or anywhere else. And I also did that with Cathay Pacific. Fairly soon after I arrived in Hong Kong, I was Cathay Pacific's travelling artist. They actually printed a card that I could show people. Uh, the family had such a marvellous time at Christmas and Easter that 
there reached a stage where our three children looked rather sadly at us and said, Oh, couldn't we just have Christmas in Hong Kong for once? Now, with uh, having had those two years in Japan uh, for your national service, what, what particular city were you in? I was very near Hiroshima. And, um, and the year? Um, this would be in 1952, 53. I, I was trained for the Royal Army Service Corps, but when I got to Yokohama, I was hoiked off the boat, and I ended up with a job which involved, amongst other things, uh, writing film crits, um, designing and editing a magazine, uh, scenery for plays, art exhibitions. Um, one of the more extraordinary things was that um, they commissioned me to um, design a cinema for them. You know, they're very important to keep the troops amused and entertained. But we, we, we were all in a Japanese officers' uh, club um, using it for educational purposes. And so I was given this quite big room and told, would I please design it so it looked like a cinema? So I did all that. There came the point where they wanted to give it a name. So they all clustered together and they discussed various names for it. And um, then uh, the guy who was I was mainly working with, he, he came up and he said, Brian, he said, we've had great problems trying to find a name for the cinema. So we've decided to call it the Tilbrook. And as a result, you know, I would, I would go into a, a public toilet or whatever, and um, I'd, I'd, you know, there'd be a couple of squaddies there, and they'd be saying, I wonder what's on at the Tilbrook tonight. And it was a very funny feeling. <laughs> now, with uh, working in Japan and coming to Asia, did that influence your art? Yes. Uh, 60, 65 would have been, and for a number of years thereafter, a rather empty sort of place, Hong Kong. And there were some very fine Chinese artists around but they 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 were having a real struggle whereas i'm pretty sure i benefited from the fact that hong kong was a colonial base and uh, i ended up with projects which you know i i was just in the right place at the right time for example the the last general in charge of hong kong military general Sir John Archer wanted a final painting of Flagstaff House as part of the military heritage. So I produced a, a huge realistic picture of the back of the house, which is now the tea museum, of course. Well, you're obviously getting paid, but do you find that when you do produce these paintings, and particularly the large murals, the fact that they're on display for some time and then gone uh, with ever-changing Hong Kong? Mm. It's when buildings get knocked down at one point, uh, most of the buildings, like Prince's Building and uh, Hong Kong Land, they, they, they had paintings of mine uh, which had been commissioned uh, with no time limit. And then I remember Hong Kong Land in particular. I went one day to um, take a look at the mural, which was an interesting slicing of old Hong Kong against new Hong Kong, old, new, old, new, old, new, all across the quite a big uh, wall. Well, when I got there, there was a big sign for Marks and Spencers, and the mural had disappeared. And it was only um, a little while later that I discovered that it had been moved to the general offices of Hong Kong land. Over the years, when you've been doing these murals and when you're doing other forms of painting, what particular do you like working with oil, acrylic, watercolours? 
More or less all the work I do is acrylic, and um, for the very good reason that um, it's um, easy to use and it's everlasting. And, you know, even oil paint, after a certain number of years, some colours become very fugitive, and the sky stays blue, but everything else goes brown. <laughs> um, whereas uh, all the work I've done in acrylic will be looking the same, good, bad, or indifferent, in a hundred years' time. Did you study formally? Oh, yes. I, I went to a couple of um, art schools. The one I most remember was Hornsey because um, it was in London and uh, it was quite um, a student trouble centre in some ways. Not while I was there. Uh, I was reasonably well-behaved. But um, <laughs> they, um, they, they were raided by the police eventually. They had helicopters landing on the... Um, rooftops and that because the uh, students were getting a bit rebellious. Art students are by nature, I think, a little bit rebellious. But um, that gave me a, a reasonable start and um, I got my degree and everything else. And then um, I had to get a job and I've been incredibly lucky getting jobs. I've never had um, a proper interview for any post that I've ever gone to. It's always been on a one-to-one -one basis. And the first job was like that. This headmaster simply rang up Hornsey and said, um, I've got a head of art department, and this is his um, CV. I want you to send me someone that you would recommend who's got roughly the same sort of CV. And that was me. I just had a chat with him for about... Um, half an hour and we discussed uh, the military and Japan and uh, one or two other totally irrelevant topics and then he said well see you in September. Because <laughs> to actually have a career as an artist is, is I would imagine quite challenging um, mm. and you know whether, whether one is teaching art or surviving on commissions you know going back to the 1960s what was the, the art landscape like here was there lots of opportunities for artists and what do you think about it now well I, I used to get quite angry with the perpetual cry of the press that they were living in a cultural desert and it's taken a long time for that to be expunged already even as early as 65 uh, I was aware that there were some very good artists around and uh, it's grown enormously um, with help from all sorts of directions. I mean, the Urban Council got uh, interested in the idea of um, the place being a bit more cultural. Um, it was marvellous when the cultural centre was built. It was marvellous when the um, training for um, arts and music and drama opened... Um, APA, that's right, APA. It really did begin to take off, but with the help of certain um, people especially, uh, there was um, a very difficult art critic um, to please, but who did um, sterling work in terms of encouraging Chinese artists, and that was um, Nigel Cameron, who was the art critic for the South China Morning Post. So at the Mandarin, you were also resident artist. Now, you've told me about some of the murals, but uh, you were also involved in creating a pond there. Yes, they, they, they were three years old. I hadn't realised that when I arrived in Hong Kong, uh, the Mandarin was uh, only just really started. Tony Ross was a, a very good manager to launch a hotel, and it became a great success. And I think when the third 
year came, they, they really felt they'd got something to celebrate. In those days, they had a vast room called the Harbour Room. I said, well, I'll, I'll build a giant um, pond and um, in conjunction with British Airways, we'll put 2,000 roses around the edge of it, flown in specially, and in the middle um, we'll have three long uh, gold candlesticks, quite tall. The middle one had the logo of the Mandarin on it, and each of them had one candle. And that looked really very pleasant, and I thought uh, it was going to do a good job. But that night, uh, Maureen and I were working on um, an Indian curry festival. Uh, it was going to be a background of things like the Taj Mahal and goodness knows what. And we just about finished it, around about 2 o'clock in the morning, when we noticed that the carpet in the harbour room had changed colour. It had gone from light blue to dark blue, and this wretched fountain and pond had leaked. It was only thick, heavy-weight plastic, but it had leaked. And so, as uh, the Mandarin crew set about emptying it out and mopping up the, uh, the carpet, I was busy re-scheming it. It became a smaller pond, but still with 2,000 roses around it, and it didn't leak during the day, and then the great gathering took off and was um, a very happy success. Did you have much to do with the governors here? To, to my great surprise, um, I did. Looking back on it all, I've, I, do, I would say that if you do anything slightly unusual, like paint or sculpt, it's the open sesame to all manner of people and professions and roles in life that you wouldn't ordinarily um, mix with. Uh, McElhose took over. He and his wife were great lovers of an area of Hong Kong where the official boat, the Lady Maureen, would take them, if they had a free weekend, out and more in this beautiful uh, inlet with mountains around it. We found ourselves being invited to Government House without having a clue why we were being invited. Lady McElhose took me to one side and sat me on the sofa and she said, Sir Murray and I would like to commission you to do two paintings. One of the city, all the high-rise buildings and the activity, and the other one particularly important to us, we would like a painting of the view and the Lady Maureen at anchor with this lovely scenery that we're so fond of. There was no problem with the, the first one. I could do that from the roof of Tamar, which was military property then, looking down on, on Prince's building and the Mandarin and all that stuff, and the Cenotaph. But the Lady Maureen, I wasn't quite sure how that was going to be coped with, but uh, they'd got it all worked out. And one morning we turned up at Government House, popped into this splendid car uh, with the chauffeur, Lady McElhose and her lady-in-waiting, and Maureen. And um, we all drove out to this um, private pier and um, got on the boat, and it sailed off, dropped anchor where their favourite spot was, and then she said, um, I'm going to row you ashore. And uh, she put me in this rowing boat. And um, a bit like Ben Gunn, I felt myself marooned on a desert island. <laughs> and she said, that's the view we'd like, please. 
um, I'll, I'll, I'll toddle off now and um, um, we'll have lunch together a bit later on. <laughs> and um, so she and Maureen then went on a sort of um, whoopee around the, <laughs> around the island in a, in a small motorboat and um, walked through some of the villages where they were very popular. I mean, Mackelhoses were known in the villages uh, extremely well. And in the meantime, I just sat there and looked at this lady Maureen and I did some sketches and took some colour notes, took some photographs, walked around the island and then came back and just waited until lunchtime when, if I remember rightly, we had sausages and mash. Some years earlier, obviously, under Trench, you had, and this was only within uh, one to two years of you arriving in Hong Kong, you had, of course, the Hong Kong riots. What, do you, what are your memories of that time? Very perturbing, you know, the habit of leaving these little red packets around, which, you know, one had to circumnavigate. Uh, they were fenced off, but you could see what you were driving past was a bomb. So, so they would be boxes, or they would be, um, yes, a sort of a, a square box wrapped up in red with a um, Chinese gold star on the top of it, sort of thing. And they could crop up anywhere. And sometimes, of course, they didn't mean a thing. But other times, like the little boy who picked up one on a tram track and was blown to pieces was a difficult time I mean uh, but I think it also resulted in uh, government making a few changes here as well in terms of education and oh yes uh, I mean one has to um, remember that when we arrived in 1965 um, even education wasn't compulsory Hong Kong is a place of typhoons a place of you know sometimes natural and sometimes man-made disasters and you were living in an area where you actually once observed a, a tragic landslide. Early on, we had to cope with typhoon and drought and disasters of one sort or another. Certainly, when I first came to Hong Kong, when I was on honeymoon, I walked into our hotel bedroom and I said to Maureen, some yob has left his bath water. And I pulled out the plug. And as the manager explained to me, that was our next three days' water supply down the drain. And why had I pulled out the plug? Sheer ignorance. The saddest occasion was the one you, you mentioned, when we were living in a beautiful block called Poshan Mansions. And uh, it was high up on the hillside. And day after... In, in mid-levels? Oh, mid-levels, sorry, in mid-levels, yeah. Pretty near the peak, but still mid-levels. And we would drive past every day uh, a building site, which was between Poshan and lower down Coatwall Road. And one could see that they were playing with potential tragedy because they were shearing off the side of the hill till it was almost 90 degrees, almost vertical. And they'd got it covered with galvanised iron, and, but it looked very rickety. And then it started to rain, and it rained for a fortnight. And as it rained, so one thought more and more that, you know, there was a disaster in the offing. Just to make life very, very complicated, there was a frightening disaster over in Kowloon, and all the government's pumps, spotlights, and um, gear to save lives was over, um, trying to cope with quite a high death rate. I think something like 80 people had already died been buried under the mud when right opposite our Poshan mansion three garages belonging to 
uh, a Chinese millionaire. The rain had undermined the ground with uh, a huge amount of water. And they started to slide down the hill. And they came to this building site where the builder had cut the ground away. And it just became a swollen landslide of mud and building and scaffolding and everything. And it rolled right the way down. And by this time, I think everyone living in Poshan mansions was out on their balcony. So this is in 1972? This is 1972. And, uh, you know, but there had been a crack a series of noises as the road gave way. And then people just watched horror-struck as this mountain of mud and earth and building material rolled down, crossed the road and went smack into the corner of Cotewell Court. And it, it sort of imploded. People were just getting their children ready for bed. People were sitting down to dinner. Um, one child escaped because... Um, the mother threw it out of the window as she saw the stuff rolling and 68 people died. I have a colleague, Enid Choi, who's at the South China Morning Post and when she interviewed you, you were talking about the rat problem. Yes, that was a nasty surprise. Uh, I'd done so many set designs and I I had fun with them. I I would produce a stage model perfectly to scale. They they, they were fun to look at. You know, they lit up and um, as I say, I had so many of them that the suggestion was made that I take over the um, area, the entrance to the City Hall Theatre, and put all these things up on, on, on tables and light them up, and the explanation of which um, garrison players, stage club, Hong Kong singers, um, there was one of the first operas ever done, The Bartered Bride, and that was paid for by a whole group of very fine Chinese singers who took the lead roles in it, and I did the setting for them. There was a tremendous variety of stuff. The first night that I went to switch off the lights before going home, I went to the switch, and this enormous rat leapt over my hand and disappeared down towards the lobby. And I realised when each morning I would go in to see that everything was okay. And the rat sort of judged the the sets in the only way they knew how. And I had to sweep the droppings up each each day. And if I remember rightly, the six sets for Oliver Twist, which was, you know, poor and downtrodden, and you would have thought ideal for a rat. Please, sir, I want some more. More? They didn't do anything to those. Um, That was a big show in the concert hall by our garrison players. But the set I did for um, the opera, La Belle Hélène, which was more or less all in white, they obviously thought this was such a temptation. (laughs) So they criticised that more than any other show. <laughs> and, what, uh, nibbling or? Uh, no, just just dropping their droppings on it. <laughs> you know, my God, what a critic! Yeah. 
My thanks to artist Brian Tilbrook, who recently celebrated his 84th birthday. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.